Welcome to the Failed Architecture Podcast, a podcast about architecture and the real world. My name is Charlie Clamos, and today it's just me hosting because this episode is actually an extended version of a breeze block we recorded earlier this year with Killian Riano. Killian is an architectural and urban designer, researcher, writer, educator, and founder of Design Agency, rendered DSGNAGNC, assistant dean of the Pratt School of Architecture, and until earlier this year, associate director of Kent State University's Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative. He's a board member of the Architectural Lobby and a core member of Designers Protest and Dark Matter University. Before we start the conversation, some background. The episode was originally timed to coincide with the year anniversary of June 8th, 2020's Blackout Tuesday, a day when architecture and design organisations joined countless others to mark their alignment with the Black Lives Matter movement by responding to the Blackout Tuesday hashtag with a black square. Unfortunately, although not that surprisingly, For the most part, their anti-racist commitment started and ended there. Meanwhile, however, the initial meetings of Designers Protest and Dark Matter University began. In their words, Designers Protest is a collective of designers mobilising strategy to dismantle the privilege and power structures that use architecture and design as tools of oppression. Their list of demands includes calls to cease implementation of hostile design, centre community leadership in the design process, and create anti-racist design models in education. In the past year, the collective has initiated a series of ongoing projects, including the Anti-Racist Design Justice Index, which is, quote, a tool for architects, designers, planners, policymakers, and community activists committed to taking action towards identifying and dismantling systemic racism. Emerging from designers' protest demand to create anti-racist models of design education, Dark Matter University is an anti-racist design justice school, which has since its establishment in early July 2020, independently expanded its network and mission to, quote, radically transform education and practice toward a just future from both inside and outside of academia. Since last year, in support of designers' protests' anti-racist design justice index, failed architecture, along with the British Social Design and Urbanism Practice Migrants Bureau, have also been gathering the responses of architecture and design institutions following Blackout Tuesday in a Google Sheet. The release of this conversation with Killian was also originally timed to coincide with the official release on 6th of June 2021 of the Anti-Racism Design Index, which members of designers' protests celebrated by hosting a national call for the launch, a link to which is available in the show notes, along with the websites of all the initiatives mentioned so far. Okay, without much further ado, the conversation with Killian. I was just going to say that it was incredible, really. Like, I mean, just the, what you've managed in the past year. Because, like, I was looking at a lot of these materials and I didn't quite connect the dots and, and realised that Dark Matter University sort of, as you mentioned in the video, emerged from point nine of the designers protest demands right um i'm not sure if you want to like link it like that necessarily but it certainly the time period is the same a year basically you've managed something that i was just thinking okay dark matter university is very established you know this is look at it it looks very very uh sorted so i don't know i just wanted to with that long preamble in mind ask you how it's been going over the past year with Dark Matter University and Designers Protest 
from your point of view. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, one reason why it's always some folks within the dark, both dark, uh, the science protests and Dark Matter University are collectives. Yeah. As a collective, the Dark Matter University has multiple starting points for different people. So some people would dispute that we came out of the science protest. I personally am not one of them. I actually really very much enjoy being part of the designers protest larger kind of organizing network. And I really think that they, they've done tons of work and I really appreciate it, all that. And I also think it's good to be part of a larger organizing effort. So, so right now we're still kind of in that place where we are part of designers protest as uh, and a little bit of an independent project within it. So it's uh, to make everyone kind of happy. And you know how it is in collective projects, then you have to do it. But yeah, like, just to share with you a little bit, so after the murder of George Floyd, I think like everyone, I was very con concerned about what was going on. It also it brought issues that we a lot of us had been talking about for many years, but it brought them really to the forefront. We were trying to figure out what to do. So I, I began to participate in designers protest calls and then started chatting more with people that like me work in universities or work in, or teach. Uh, and, and we decided that we needed to have a, a more cohesive project that, that really talked about the, some of the issues that we were seeing, uh, both in the, the teaching side, the administrative side, and as a student for people of color and, and the themes and topics that get looked at. It's right around July, and I think that we decided, I think July 1st is our, our, our official anniversary, so we haven't even really hit that yet, just yet, that we began to have consistent conversations. Number one on the agenda, besides our name, which it was one of those f both kind of contentions and fun things that to come up together, was how much to work within the system and outside the system. We decided that we wanted to do both. We wanted to begin to create new systems, but also that working within uh, institutions and universities was important. And then we started getting requests and, and we started putting together something that became the Design Justice Fundamentals course. And we began to develop a few processes and systems. Number one is always partnering, having faculty be partners, especially with uh, in cases like uh, that maybe someone with a little more established and uh, experienced teaching studio could uh, work with someone with less so that both the university feels good, everyone, and and there's peership going on, that we're going doing peer-to-peer -peer work. So out of that, we ended up teaching all the courses and design justice fundamentals, multiple universities, often universities kind of coming together to different universities. And, and, and those courses were, the, one of the beautiful things about this is that the syllabus was developed collectively by tons of people, and anyone in theory could give that course. Uh, and then we did two studio modules and uh, those were done through an internal call for courses, which many issues came up. For example, one of the things that I still am thinking and talking about is someone that proposed a, a course on slowness and being slow as a, as a radical act. Not everything has to be filled and that often communities of color are affected by the, by the, the, the bias towards doing something now, 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 filling, filling. So it's not that those things don't need to happen, but rather that by slowing the process, you can bring more voices, you can do things and you can let the, the people on the ground. So now we're, we're creating a more kind of specific RFQ system by which universities, and we, and we are asking them to change some administrative systems, often even uh, trying to contract with the university itself. 
and then to also be so allowing the two teacher thing in some universities that's difficult allowing different student bodies to come together creating vertical so also changing the, that model and, and also trying to change the relationship between the professor and the student all often questioning you in that process itself so it's been a process of questioning education and all its models and and systems but also being part of it and very consciously being part of it and being part of state schools that, that sometimes have more rules that they have to follow and places that serve both uh, the African-American community like HBCUs or what here they call Hispanic serving institutions like uh, CUNY and other places. Wow. Yeah. Um, such a lot. Like, um, yeah, I, I was just thinking about this notion of like working inside and outside institutions. It seems to me that progress hasn't really happened within institutions as such. But um, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit more about the responsibility of architecture and design organisations, considering especially that this has been the focus of, I guess, failed architecture's very limited involvement in this over the past year with kind of gathering some information about responses on June 8th in particular, Black Square, Tuesday, um, what your thoughts more broadly on the responsibility of architecture and design institutions to work towards an anti-racist design future? I, I think it's interesting that you guys are beginning the Black Square because I think that's the moment in which the performative nature of some of these anti-racist kind of statements began to really kind of hit everyone. That, yeah, and on, the, on one end, you want institutions because they're the ones that serve the majority of people. And this, and this is why it to us has been important to talk about state schools, about the schools that really are serving or could begin to serve uh, with more cohesive structures, people of color. And it's important for them to say the words. But I think that that, that Black Square, I guess, Junaid, I've had forgotten the date, so I'm glad that you mentioned it, Charlie. Uh, it's important that to also to keep them accountable because it's easy to celebrate those words at that moment. The reality is that, uh, you know, backlash is going to come. I think a lot of us are bracing ourselves for that. Already you see things like critical race theory on the chopping blocks of many places and, and it becoming a real political football here in the U.S. because anytime there's any advancements, there's always a backlash. So both the making sure that all institutions say something, that that something is it's meaningful that it has some some depth to it. So it's not just a broad, we're thinking of X, but we are gonna do these steps. So for example, the GSD and other institutions, they put out some specific steps they would take to then keep them accountable. And, and the point here, and I think that this has been clear and ever since Trump took power in 2016, that the role of civil society and their institutions and both them saying what their values are, where they want to see, and then an activist and an organizing effort to keep them accountable is very important. Those issues only became, they were all is there, but they became more noticeable and understandable after the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, I was thinking as well about the fact that what comes apparent, obviously it's been quite a difficult year and we've been stuck in, behind our computers, a lot of us, um, for long periods of time, um, uh, you know, which is in itself somewhat of a privilege. But, you know, it has, in a sense... And it really became clear in in engaging with uh, Kristen Hu of Feld Architecture and um, their involvement with designers' protests. The, the the way that 
kind of connecting online and also some of the things that maybe historically have been dismissed as like clicktivism do actually have some potential usefulness as a sort of one of several tools in holding institutions accountable but also that online activity does have this potential to bring together just like um in a different space across very large boundaries people who otherwise would have been stuck in you know really struggling on their own within institutions right and I don't know I really yeah I I, I do find it sometimes hard to be too sort of uh, critical or, or miserable about the past year because it's actually, speaking for failed architecture as well, been really um, enabling of keeping in touch because we've just gotten used to the idea that, oh, we can just jump on a call and I can talk to someone in America. And I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, it's 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 just we're all kind of used to it now. And yeah, anyway, I think I think there's something in that, you know, the, the potential to... Um, keep that pressure up has increased because of there's sort of more communication happening behind the scenes between different activists and different sort of interest groups. I don't know if you wanted to kind of speak. Yeah, on totally. I mean, there's a few things here to unpack. Number one is the idea of clicktivism. I, I think that that's an interesting thing to bring here because especially, again, in the context of the Black Square and all that, uh, because I think it's maybe an interesting moment to begin to think about what's what's clicktivism, whether clicktivism is bad, I'm not passing judgment, and what goes beyond that, to use uh, digital and social engagement tools or social media tools for organizing. So in, in a way, I think what you, what you are saying is that it went from just using a hashtag or something like that, which was what clicktivism, I think, was, was up to a point, it's really creating organizing structures online. And and in a funny way, although you, I, I've had a little bit of a long history in this, I was an early Arconet editor. Mm-hmm. I created and organized to, uh, people to do things there. Uh, I then did things like uh, Folk MoMA with Anomalia Leon. And I, so I've, I've been involved in, I did a project called Who Owns Space, that it was kind of a hashtag, mm-hmm. and, but it was questioning the privatization of space somewhere in between. Uh, but I feel like Dark Matter University maybe was actually much closer to my experience with the architecture lobby and other organizing efforts, in which it became very clear that uh, we were taking it slow, organizing, building up, and then putting back up. Instead of uh, saying, this is the thing, sign on to it right now, or anything like yeah. that. And so those things are coming along and building. But I want to agree with you 100%. And, and I have to say that, for example, Dark Matter University came together I think it's because a lot of us had uh, had experienced very similar things, either in the teaching side for many years, beginning teaching side, or even some folks as students making the transition to thinking about teaching. And we had experienced it all. We didn't have a group yet to have honest conversations about these issues with. Uh, and, and once we did it, it really, um, all of us began to share, and we have, you know, both, behind the scenes organizing, weekly meetings, we have uh, we have groups, the chat groups, we have tons of ways. And at each level, we both kind of have been able to talk about personal experiences and understanding them. And, and, and I go back to these issues often, that the, from the body, <laughs> that what we experience is actually systems, systematic, and that we, by sharing this way and by using all the tools that, like you said, the pandemic has kind of forces to use, 
these stories began to come out and then to begin to think about just doing something about it. And lately also even to share joy, right? Like uh, mm. as, uh, some folks at EMU are getting uh, more awards and more recognition and they're ch- shifting jobs or even just the end of the semester. I know a powerful experience was having a final review and have like 10 people from Dark Matter University come and have one, a review that was unlike any that I've been a part of and really kind of was a beautiful moment to end. So anyway, to both share uh, these stories try to organize around shared experiences that, that both uh, from things that maybe administration has done or even ways in which relations between professors and students, the kind of work that we wanted to look at uh, and begin to think about new ways to look at those sets of issues to uh, celebrations. Yeah, it, it, I, I guess what I was also getting at, and I think it's a minimal thing, just the sort of, I, I feel like people are, in general, activists are becoming more adept at taking the best of this kind of collectivist I suppose approach because like I mean I was just thinking about the fact that you know okay there there were all these empty gestures but what about if you know um speaking about designers protest here as an outsider but you know what about if we actually set up a series of long discussed demands that we can kind of actually bring to the table and say okay you've you've said this you know that you um support broadly the idea of anti-racism but what you know like here's some demands that you can actually concretely engage with um i want to change direction a little bit uh, i well, i think it probably just builds on the last points but um maybe just sort of speaking more on the i guess negative side of design and how it's been used to sort of perpetuate systems of um oppression and i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on like uh i i was listening to your talk at tuskegee and you were talking about this um your experience with this project l space in sunset sunset park in is it in brooklyn is that right yes Sunset park brooklyn yeah anyway uh you mentioned that there was a sort of instinctive hostility to just the concept of design amongst participants in the neighborhood right and I think this speaks to a wider notion of the problem of design as this thing that is applied from above, from the top down, right? Um, and something that is a tool of a wider process of um, displacement. Um, I'd wonder if you could, yeah, just maybe un- unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, this is a case study that I like to talk about often. To be honest, when we started, and, and I was the Urban Design Fellow, uh, and all the fellows worked together, and we all developed the project. It was myself, Trisha Martin, what's Neelai from Wheat Design, and Lenny Schrendinger, who's a lighting designer, quite great, uh, a human being, and fun. So uh, we were supposed to move the project a little bit faster. One of the first things we decided is that we needed to slow it down, and it was partly through conversations with multiple community stakeholders in which we realized that what was happening in this community is that, like you're saying, any design from any side, whether it's the government, the private entity, anyone, it was being seen as a, a suspect, that it was really designing for other people. I, I actually even remember like one of the first kind of real engagements that we had with, with folks. The first, one of the first things people said is to not do any of the hipster stuff, to not create seating areas, to not put food trucks, to not make it a place of games, 
And again, and I think I love the, talking about this because I think it talks about some of the issues around failed architecture, how some of the, the concepts that we might come up with uh, that we, you know, at one point people think, oh, this is great, this is what the community needs. And then it begins to, to create a, a culture around itself. So while one day, and, and I use games quite a bit, uh, my, my idea of games come from theater of the oppressed, they have a lineage. Uh, but however, when people, what they see on the ground is that ping pong tables is what, uh, you know, tech companies have. And it begins to take on another that like basically becomes a leisure activity for folks with wealth that want to like uh, do the placemaking and want to take over things. And folks minds those kind of projects quite honestly mean that they're not for them and that is, is meant to displace them. And so there's a couple of things that we did. We began by taking those issues seriously. And, and even folks were talking, the number one worry was that it was the space itself. And I'll talk about it in one second, was really the, the, the place related to the jobs that were in the waterfront. Those jobs have been traditionally immigrant jobs. And, you know, Sunset Park has one of the highest rates of people that live that walk to work because their, their jobs are there. The, the folks that have been working on those uh, jobs in the waterfront and in the industrial areas have changed dramatically, but they were, have always been filled by, by immigrants. So they wanted things uh, around, the, that was the real thing that people wanted to talk about is jobs. Why is the waterfront becoming a luxury item? And then the second thing was then safety. That, uh, that what they really wanted was that that area does behave like a highway. The, there was, and they identified it as an important thing. I mean, something as dumb as, I mean, dumb but important as the downspout from the highway, one of the first highways ever built in the United States and kind of anywhere of its kind, the downspout would empty on the pedestrian side. So like literally as you were walking there, you would just get like uh, all the water from the highway dumped on you. So wow. just as, like the number one thing we did, first thing was just switch that. <laughs> switch it so that it goes into away from the pedestrians. And, and then we began working with uh, Trisha, uh, organized courses, green infrastructure courses in the high school. So we began to do a series of things that were meant to really listen deeply to what people were talking about and repackage it. But I really think it's important, it was important, to understand why people are fearful. And I'm going to share with you a couple of thoughts here very quickly, which is, that the Sunset Park experience of uh, fear of design, even though we were, broadly speaking, working on the behalf of the uh, Department of Transportation, trying to create a new kind of public space process, and kind of dealing with an area that was a parking lot, a highway, and where people were dying, you know, because uh, when you cross the street, cars were hitting them. But it made me think about those larger issues, about jobs, about the way that things are changing and that people uh, don't always have a handle on, and what it might require for design to take, you know, a little bit more on those issues, right? So when often when people hear that you're a designer, they think that you're coming to decorate it, to make it cool, cute, beautiful, whatever. So that's a word that, quite honestly, I even like as a designer. I, I, I want to make beauty. <laughs> and I even, one of my proudest moments is that uh, I was able to design this weird downspout that was large and a little awkward. It, it, but it became as a signal of this is a place that works. Water is moving, is coming here and doing this. But even that moment was something that I was very excited to do. And then it became kind of the signifier of the space. But we made it all about showing the way things work. The lighting was a way to make 
plants grow, those plants would clean the water, the water would go into the water better. But altogether, that area also began to reorganize traffic, slow down cars. And so I began to do all the sets of things that, that the folks in the community. But what it really did to me is, number one, ask that question. And then at the same time, I was working in Youngstown and Warren, Ohio, areas that have been depopulated since the 1950s. And I've, I've been writing reports, and I just wrote a report in the Architectural League of New York. And um, and began to think about the deindustrialization, the loss of jobs and population in places like Ohio, and then and even um, things like speculation. A Ukrainian oligarch owns this gigantic steel mill area that is kind of just left rotting and creating a toxic mess in Warren, Ohio. And then comparing that to Sunset Park, and, and the two questions about how design can ask the questions about how uh, the agency of people in making decisions as their communities change, number one. That's why my practice is called design agency, right? It's about that. Number two, about how we are related to these changes and questioning our role, even if at times we have to participate with it. Because I don't think the role of a designer is to be so critical to not participate. We have to somehow engage in the spatial production, urban spatial production. And urban to me is wide open to include areas that might not seem superurban. And, and, and so then I moved to Ohio, often after that experience, began to set up uh, ideas around looking at the future of work. And so the work, that, that very project in, in Sunset Park began to set up some of the interest in cooperative models and looking at labor and work as something that can be replaced. And on, quite honestly, even Sunset Park with its history of cooperatives, the, the, you know, you probably have, I may have mentioned this or you have read it, but the Finnish community, when they moved to Sunset Park, created a gigantic series of cooperatives. They had housing cooperatives, they had bakeries, they had, so there's even that history embedded within the very kind of structure. And some of the buildings that not far from where we were working have that history. So why can't the Mexican-American community, the broadly speaking, or Latinos from all over Latin America, and the Chinese and East Asian communities that are moving, those folks can also begin to create those processes. So anyway, one experience, getting pushback, listening to that deeply and trying to understand how that critique talked about the failed architecture of our moment has led me to ask other sets of questions and try to think about how Warren, Ohio, and Sunset Park, Brooklyn, although very different, one immigrant, one mostly uh, African-American and white with very little immigrant populations, uh, but how those two places have relationships that the systems has imposed a set of things, how those two areas can't also become then enclosed, xenophobic, etc., and how we can imagine futures, not me, but all, all of us together. Just a lot of things to talk about there, but I think I'll steer it to what I wanted to talk about next, which, I mean, you've kind of already touched upon it, but, um, well, this notion of slowing down the process, I think, is uh, very interesting to me as a sort of practice of um, a radical anti-capitalist practice. You know, so much of the the, the force of um, capitalist development, I suppose, capitalist urban development, is about speed. You know, it's about creative destruction, right? And um, ruining landscapes and, you know, or complex relationships that have developed over a long period of time slowly to use your term right and um i've been thinking about this a little bit in relation recently to um the pritzker prize winners lakaton and vassal right who 
mostly engage with refurbishment who also again start with the conversations with people in the in the neighborhood right and that they're working with uh, there's an interview with uh, Jean-Philippe Vassal where he, he he dismisses the idea of scale there is no such thing as scale if you break up the whole uh, uh, project into series of conversations with everybody involved, you know, and, and you, you deal with it, each of them individually. But um, I feel like there was quite a resonance there, probably just because I was reading it and then reading about your talk of um, the work of Walter Hood and his um, urban diaries and this idea of centering people, right? And actually people being really just utterly at the heart of the drawings that he that he produces you know and not in a superficial way where you know you have the renderings and all that but you know really genuinely weaving stories in and 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 under sort of grasping the needs of the community i i don't know it feels to me like um just to sort of be negative again, you know, that like the problem with design is that it gets caught up in this, this speed, this, this need to constantly be kind of producing new things and building big buildings and, you know, redeveloping the whole neighborhood and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. I tried to find quickly pictures of Walter Hood's drawings, but I was more going by your discussion of them. And I'd be interested to, yeah, it'd be nice to hear you talk a little bit about them because I, I feel like you, you're you quite attached to them, right? So uh, there's a couple of things. Urban Diaries came to me when I was an undergraduate at uh, University of Florida. I was being taught kind of, like, I don't know, a little bit of a formalist, you know, Mauhausian with a little bit of Sciarc and Columbia University thrown in, in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s moment. Finding his book to me was kind of revolutionary, it, mostly because it was also kind of, um, I, I, I place it, I, I think it's in the early 90s, mid 90s, but it has a little bit of an 80s kind of also feeling. And discovering his practice, first of all, an African-American designer that, that had such, you know, broad and, and interesting kind of body of work and that recently has been getting all the awards and getting the praise that probably he's been due for decades. I'm very excited about it. And there's something about this one, which was that it believed in design. It didn't say that design can't be part of the conversation, but it centered people. And, and out of the stories of people that he talks about, tells and retells, begins to distill different relationships, begins to talk about and draw it and draw it again, and begin to scale it in different ways. And I completely agree about this question about lack of, of skill. I use the same process and system and I have taught in everything from interior design to urban design to systems design, service design, whatever you want to call it. Schools have to break it up because schools have to break it up, etc. I see no difference. So I use the same methodologies. And this semester I was very proud and excited to try out. And, and, and so uh, I, I've done it before, and I've done it with my friend Cheryl Wingsy Wong at Parsons. I've taught it in other courses like that. But this idea of really putting it into practice. Uh, and, and so I first learned about Walter Hood. I really enjoyed seeing the body and, and quite honestly, black and brown bodies being put. The, the, the dude with the boombox in the corner being thought of as a potential person with ideas around how to use space, not a nuisance. And these sets of things, instead of 
kind of trying to design something and have people kind of conform to it, understand everyday practices and design to provide those practices space. So then later on, that design idea got combined for me with theater of the oppressed processes of creating scenes, moments, in which the everyday lived experience of people gets distilled and talked about and understood as a systematic thing that is not about solving the problem per se, but that oppression is a system that uh, as, as we change one thing, another thing is going to come back to oppress. And it's all about constantly about creating the tools to be able to name oppression and have constant conversations about it. And even one thing that I also love about theater of the oppress is that actually is a very formalist practice uh, where like the way your body moves literally means something, the relationship of your body to ours, and that's read in, in very interesting ways. I, I brought that to the architecture lobby. We did a series of... Uh, reworking architecture performances in Chicago, for example. And I brought that to studio. I actually used to teach studios in which the first person that came was a theater of the oppressed performer that would give us lessons and we would go through an entire practice of doing that. So, but this semester we, we looked at an area called Huff, a red line community, basically, you know, disinvested on purpose by the government, by banks, by, by, for many decades. Recently, as everyone in the United States and many countries is beginning to rush back to downtown areas, uh, this, this area right next to the Cleveland Clinic, one of the biggest and most profitable health institutions in the world, yet some of the, the, the worst health outcomes, uh, nutrition, etc., unemployment right around it and downtown. So between downtown Cleveland and the Cleveland Clinic, there's this stretch of red line communities working with a group here called Cleveland Owns, and then folks on the ground doing some work, actually creating youth councils, looking at how narrative and storytelling, and they're doing urban planning through that. But beginning by studying these things, identifying people, identifying actors, both some composites, some individuals, like uh, there was a gentleman named Marvin that, that works uh, here, there in Huff and became a really important person because he was wanting to share his story, what it was like for him to grow up in the neighborhood, what it was like for him to be incarcerated and then come back to his neighborhood, and what it means for the future, what he sees in the neighborhood for his kids. And to out of that story, begin to talk about the carceral system, transportation processes, job opportunities, mentorship, education, and begin to distill out of that so the students began by designing for one body, then they had to negotiate with other students and then create mutations and move up to design to two to three bodies. Then out of that, they had to scale up. So constantly collapsing and bringing uh, different skills forth with negotiations with other students. The results were a series of cooperatives that all kind of worked together and all had thinking all the way down how this collectivity is uh, represented all the way down to the human scale, to the urban scale, and how it linked to the existing people and services of the community. Amazing. Um, I mean, I'm sure where, if pressed, Jean-Philippe Vassal would probably admit that there is such a thing as scale, but I think it's the same sort of thing, right? Where it's like you start kind of with um, something more intimate or a unit that can can be kind of um, built up from there, right? And that you build from the, the individual scale. It's, um, yeah, it's very interesting. I, I It's nice that you brought up, because um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your context in, in Cleveland. And um, uh, I know a little bit about the Cleveland model and community wealth building. And it does seem like a 
a promising, I guess, um, base for kind of something uh, resembling a more liberated future. You know, that you acknowledge the importance of retaining the wealth that is produced on a more local scale. Um, it might also touch upon some of our what we talked about before recording about folk politics, right? I don't know if you want to engage with that either, because there is a problem with, um, you know, strictly thinking about keeping the wealth in the community, you know, that there there is um, a need for something more universal to kind of mediate that. Anyway, I'm kind of maybe splurging here, but I think it would be nice considering that the Democracy Collaborative kind of began in Cleveland and that this notion of community wealth building, although with many precedents before, the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War and Rojava and uh, Zapatistas, you know, there is many, many precedents for kind of retaining wealth locally. But it would be interesting to know your how you've observed this this like experiment on the ground and how you might link it to maybe some of the things you've been doing with designers protest and dark matter university. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's the diggers, right? And the UK and some of them, you had the, the Christian thing at first. And it's kind of fascinating to hear the histories of both communal experimentations, cooperative and, and what those might mean. Yeah. This country's littered with some of those, even before kind of um, the more kind of systematic ways of looking at things in by, by Marx and others came along so but there's multiple histories and there's first of all i think your question is incredibly important because although i see some of these cooperative uh, processes and efforts uh, interesting and important part of a potential liberative uh, model i i think it's important to talk about number one what they don't do mm-hmm. and potentially the real problems because in some ways uh, ethno-nationalists are living communes and cooperatives uh, that they're not they're not uh, God-given good <laughs> and that and that uh, I think that even the way you phrased it around ro- localism because I am afraid of localism generally I'm an immigrant to the United States uh, if we go through a localist uh, structure where do I belong <laughs> mm. uh, and not only that I don't often work, work and this is actually something that we at Dark Matter University have been talking about consistently and 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 it's a consistent uh, kind of it's like how uh, none of us really designed for the communities we're from right and and even that can be problematic to say uh, because we all even um, a lot of us even our our education might put us in a different place in a different way however we understand certain things we we can have a conversation that is a little bit closer so all this to say that number one, I, I think cooperatives are important. I'm about to talk about what you asked me, but I think that it's important for me to put on the table that they're not a, a net good, that they can be used in multiple ways. And the question then about who belongs and the porosity of these systems becomes incredibly important to me. And then the second part of this is that it's about that. And then about the scaling of this, right? Because if you are, and this is something I talked about often, in, in New York City, it's like uh, some of the new uh, ways of making public, in quotes, space can be problematic because basically they require the people in the communities to pay for their own parks. So what that means is that people in the Upper East Side are going to have certain kinds of parks and the people in areas that can afford that, you know, the business improvement districts, whatever it is. 
So to understand the, the even the conservative nature of some of that street localism is important to us understand. And to understand then how local efforts and these kind of organizational things have to be linked up cannot keep a government off the hook and all the agencies, including for the past failures. I mean, again, some of these areas have been purposefully disinvested on and wealth has been taken from them for many, many decades. So we can't just start from zero because that's not a fair place to start, just straightforwardly. And that it requires a systems and a larger scale thinking Okay, having said all that, the cooperative things that I think is interesting is that they're beginning to create more, and especially with the democracy collaborative, looking at Mondragon, looking at some of the existing models in Europe specifically, because, you know, looking around, the ones in Mondragon, the one in Italy, I think it's the uh, Reggio Emilia and, and other have fared better economically, even through political upheaval, through economic upheaval, than most other systems. So uh, taking a look at that and looking at that a more democratic system of ownership is needed. Number one, uh, here, one of the conversations is that a lot of the baby movers are beginning to retire and their businesses are shutting down. So the model of creating employee ownership is even just a way to keep some of these jobs in the area. And, and perhaps this is a bad way to talk about it, but in areas where literally people are just... Uh, the whole conversation is about how many jobs, how. And, you know, the Amazon thing that happened a few years ago showed how people were willing to sell out big chunks of cities for a few jobs. This is a real conversation that is happening. So uh, the, the Democracy Collaborative began to, uh, looking at Mondragon and other people, began to understand the Cleveland Clinic is an incredibly big and, and powerful institution. Why isn't it doing more in the community around it? Then basically began to try to understand with the community around it, what are the kind of services that they could provide for the Cleveland Clinic and begin to set up employee-owned businesses that could do that. So, so far they're doing the laundry. They have a gigantic and quite actually beautiful greenhouse where they grow beautiful little lettuces that for the for the cafeteria. And actually, I even find that a, a little bit of a missed opportunity because that could be like, at, at the, the, the center of some of these communities. It could be actually part of the urban fabric of the place, but it's really kind of out of the way. But in, in the winter, you see that purple. And they've done that. They, tons of money has been put into these cooperatives to work. Uh, it is bringing jobs. The question of how many jobs for how many people, how many people get, all those are important questions to ask, right? To begin to answer some of those questions, another group called Cleveland Owns has been coming up. Uh, that's a more kind of in community-driven effort, and it's similar to things that are happening in the Bay Area. They're even kind of doing away with some of what they see as the corporate structure of the Evergreen Cooperatives to create an even more radical community-based and horizontal systems that would allow those democratic processes and systems to move forward. Uh, we and, and me are interested in thinking about how those efforts can also begin to create the more democratic public spaces. And again, all this within the understanding that we can let government and other things off the hook and that it can't just be a local effort because both this community has you owe to them and also because you cannot create a conservative system. And, you know, a local system is perfect for the rich because then they can just say, you know, in my community, yeah, sure, we'll cooperate mm -hmm. and we'll have... Uh, but that, it can't be like that either. I think that ideas of taxation, progressive uh, no, notions of investing in communities that haven't, especially those that have been disinvested on purpose and taken from, is important. And the final thing I'll say is that 
And I'm particularly interested in this because the current neoliberal solutions to many of the problems that we have or that I've seen here in Northeast Ohio are um, big in, in scale and nature. Like to think about the failed architecture kind of ethos and way of thinking, they're at a scale that when they fail, they fail catastrophically. So tons of money put to Lordstown Motors, to GM and LG battery plants, to these gigantic efforts and billions and billions of dollars put mostly as a sign that these political parties care about this region because there's a politically important region. Uh, you know, it's a swing area in a swing state, all those kind of sets of things. But the reality means that when these things fail, tons of people are going to lose out. And even if they work out, really, it might mean more jobs for people in Cleveland and Pittsburgh with engineering degrees. And the folks on the ground are left without any of those, those jobs or efforts. So what I see then is that these cooperatization efforts allows people to organize for better kind of more money, allows even organizations, governments and foundations to give them the money. And it allows a lowercase e economy to thrive and continue that is not dependent on these transnational and at times even, quite honestly, risky efforts that, uh, you know, if they work out, who would they benefit? If they don't work out, it really creates uh, bad situations for that entire community. Oh, and the yeah. last thing I'll mention is the Health Anchor Network. The Democracy Collaborative is also beginning to think about the, the role of many other hospitals within communities. And yeah. I'm interested in that too, as a potential model. And basically asking universities, Health, uh, health institutions, all the institutions that are both within the system, but also live outside of it, that are often uh, powerful and have money and have stakes and they're in every community almost, uh, to think about how to better work within the communities that they're within. Usually, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but here often hospitals can be campuses that don't look at the, at this random community at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I already kind of said it, but like, I, I think when I first stumbled upon Across it, it seemed like a no-brainer. And props to fellow editor Rene Bohr. I remember trying to write about community wealth building, and he immediately problematizing again this this notion of um, holding wealth and how do you decide what kind of people are the community, right? And that's an incredibly fluffy term in a lot of senses. But I I still hold on to the fact that fundamentally it's it's about trying to identify untapped means of leverage i suppose for like a more prosperous situation locally and um a way of leveraging so that these big institutions that aren't doing enough do actually start putting their resources in the right place um i think it would be nice to talk a little bit about the another slice of the social movement repertoire in relation to architecture and design which is the burgeoning uh move towards uh, workplace organization championed by groups like the one you're involved with, Architecture Lobby, but in the UK as well, um, United Voices of the World, Section Architectural Workers. That, again, you know, it's not, I mean, we can problematize and say, like, this is not the be-all and end-all and that, you know, you can't change architecture and design or turn it into something that isn't, you know, hugely damaging and extractive globally. And behind a large proportion of carbon emissions, yada, 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 you know, um, extremely exploitative in various places, we could go on. But like, it is promising, nonetheless, I think, as a sort of 
one tool or weapon in the attempt to try and turn or divert architecture and design towards something more liberated and ethical. It's not really got that far yet, I suppose. And uh, I'd be interested to know what you think the importance, I suppose, of uh, workplace organisation for questions of anti-racist struggle and how that's been kind of developing over the past year since your work with Dark Matter University developed and designers protest as well. Uh, basically, architecture finds itself in a very interesting place. And I, I don't know, Charlie, and I would love you to hear a little bit from your side on this, because here in the U.S., right, uh, white-collar job, <laughs> professional, all that stuff. Yet the reality is that the jobs are not always great. It takes a long time. And honestly, one reason why people of color don't even come into the profession and often are even um, driven away by my guidance counselor. My guidance counselor told me not to be. Not that it, and I'm not one of those people that like, oh, I played with Legos and I dream. I never dreamt of being an architect. I actually wanted to be an artist. Uh, and I came to architecture through art. I'm a Yatitsa Potridge. And that's my end to architecture. But I do remember clearly my middle school counselor in Miami saying to not go into architecture, to a room full of like 99% Latinx community of many races, because Latinx is not a race. So, it, uh, and, and as I've tried to even recruit to, you know, when I was at Harvard's GSD, they sent me to go to the NOMA conference and see who would be interested. And there's some conversations around this that are important to have as well. So, but, but anyway, so we're there. Uh, often, I remember almost getting arrested with Peggy Deaver, uh, the 2010-something Chicago AI convention. And as we were being ushered out uh, for our small protest, reading the Architectural Lobby Manifesto, but I remember as we being ushered out, the, the guys that were the big burly dudes that were ushering us out saying, so you guys want a union? Aren't you architects? Well, we are a union. You guys should chat with us. So as we were being ushered out and threatened with arrest if we came back, we were being given pointers by uh, union members. I myself have been a union member. I've been represented from everyone, from the, the United Auto Workers to yeah. the government union when I worked for the city. I've been represented up by at least three different unions, and perhaps yeah. there will be one more or two more in my future. Um, so all this to say that to me is important. The place that architects are in here in the U.S. that is awkward is number one. A lot of people see what we do as professionals um, and, and both there's legal precedent that it's hard to unionize for that. And second, we are doing a bad job at creating solidarity outside of architecture uh, because I think that the only way that organization is going to happen is if we create solidarity with the entire building process system, with the uh, construction workers, with all the folks, all the folks. And it requires us thinking differently about ourselves. Every Again, it's a question of subjectivity. All these things are very different even when we were beginning to talk about these things with Peggy 10 years ago. And now I feel like there's more of a consciousness of that in all of an architecture, etc. Which is important in itself, right? The consciousness raising element of a union, I would say. I mean, like you asked me what my experience is. I, I didn't train as an architect and I am a member of the uh, United Voices of the World Section Architectural Workers and the National Union of Journalists. And it's an interesting contrast because on the one hand, you have a very, very young union where literally, I mean, as in it's mostly composed, I think, of architectural assistants and, you know, people who are sort of still studying and working through that. And very, very energetic. You know, there's new members all the time and you can see that there's like 
the what we talked about earlier with the way that online has enabled certain um, potential conversations to happen across outside of your local environment. Um, so that's been quite interesting. But and uh, you know, it's uh, it's a really long way to go. But I do feel like the consciousness raising aspect is um, is what it, what's what it's about. Is about kind of like understanding that the ability for architects to I don't know, make change doesn't necessarily reside in their exclusively in their ability to design. And, you know, there's an argument to be had there because I think mostly we've actually spoken about some really, really interesting examples from you and more broadly where design actually does have some function and you would have, on the other hand, there has been, I've heard like it said in various contexts that, you know, that isn't, the way that architects can change things. And I, I, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, so I think it's incredibly important for architects to unionize, uh, full stop. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's perhaps one of the most important things that, that we can do. It's important to begin to talk about the real uh, labor conditions. Is it, 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 I, and I think even the little bit of organizing that has already happened in schools and outside of it is beginning to change some, some, some minds, et cetera. I think I'm more cohesive than, as I mentioned, that we are going to begin eventually hitting some legal kind of limits as to how far that could go. It'll be interesting to see how we navigate that. To me, uh, the most important part of unionization is that, that it puts us in relationship to other workers, both in places that we work in, if we have a big firm, whatever it is, but also that it puts us with other workers outside of architecture. I think it's important also because conversations around social and racial justice become more uh, amplified through that very organization. And in our case, you know, with one of the widest professions in the United States, maybe the conversation with other fields uh, can, can begin to do something uh, about yeah. it. I think, I think it's important to talk even about race as, uh, as we talk about those sets of issues. Like it is almost in every aspect of American life and why it could be important for architecture to be in relationship to other folks where, because there are tons of people of color in the act of urban space making, uh, yeah. space production. Yet they're not always in architecture. We have to ask that question. I think a union will help. We need to bring more folks into the tent. I think that union will help. I think all those sets of things, as well as no one in the United States advocates for the, the architect. The organizations argue for architecture, mm-hmm. and that's a completely different animal, right? And I'm not necessarily an architect. I mean, you know, I'm not licensed. I studied architecture, and I consider myself one, but, you know, I... I what I consider myself in my house, no one cares about. <laughs> uh, but but the reality is that we need people that are advocating for the larger things. And I think the architecture lobby, when we st- when we started, especially, was to advocate for was to create a union to advocate for the things that no one else is, not for a bigger piece of the pie of the infrastructure bill, which you know might have its goods or bads. I I don't know. But you know, what about working hours that make sense? What about services that would make it easier for the workers to be able to do the things they do and take care of their family, like uh, childcare, et cetera, something that we've heard consistently about. And as well as I think what you're hinting at, the potential of unions to begin to allow to have conversations about the kind of work we do. That's one thing. Unions tend to work also much better at, at a larger scale. And I'm sure that they could. we could even 
One problem with architecture that we have observed from the very beginning is that this unions might work with a specific kind of architecture firm, not all. So then where we left and the word architect can mean anything from employee to employer, from professor to student, it can mean so much that the architecture lobby, when it started, it tried to create those kind of consciousness of subjectivities uh, and understand that some subjectivities are in conflict and that's not a bad thing, that conflict is important in a democratic system uh, and that we could have both employers and employees in it because they're both architects, right? Uh, and everything between. So how do you have an organization like that? And that's one one thing that, that unions are either going to have to think hard about or a certain skill and kind of, kind of practice can be unionized, which another one. The other part of that is then the cooperative network aspect that, that works in a few ways, including kind of as a, as a network of independent kind of practitioners that allows those practitioners the flexibilities, uh, skills, and so the, the cooperative network. And, and I think that in, in reality for architecture to change for the better, all these tools are going to be needed. The union for the, the shops and the places that are needed especially in relationship to the unions and the the folks that are within the production of space. And then the cooperative networks that are also embedded within the larger networks of folks on the ground that are advocating for their own cooperatives and together to then help reimagine those uh, sets of possibilities. And and to me, the the heart of it, all of this is to really advocate for the needs of the architect, not architecture. Architecture is going to get built or not going to get built. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's uh, the goal. And a lot of our professional organizations end up doing that more often than not. I mean, they they argue that doing it for the architect, really, they're just trying to bring, again, bigger chunks which is fine, but also as individuals, the needs we have put us in solidarity with others. And I think that that's what's important to me, that whatever these sets of tools, the unions, the cooperative network, we've even at one time talked about the history of things like guilds and uh, work, you know, like we've talked workbenches, we've talked about a whole that many of these tools might be necessary, but that the goal is to create solidarity and to have the, 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 these larger conversations. Like yeah. no, no tool left behind. And, and I think that this comes back to, again, what I see as the beauty of failed architecture is the reminder that when we only go with one tool, we fail. <laughs> I'm not sure if, if, if Failure is something to avoid. I'm not 100% sure that's what I mean, but rather a failure is something to mitigate, to understand, to work with. And, and, and this bit the beauty of me of understanding your work, the liberative even project that actually liberated me from trying to win. <laughs> failure is an option and the, the likely option because we all are working off of the things we know right now. And, uh, and it can be problematic because we don't know everything and we don't know exactly and we don't, we don't even represent everyone. To me, these democratic processes, these systems, these conversations, and using every tool, every design kind of idea, every critically, not uncritically, is, is to me my response to what the things that you guys have been pointing out and, and, that, and that a humanist level have, we forced people to live in certain ways. So we've done certain things. 
that uh, our very own lack of pluralism, radical pluralism have caused. I, uh, it reminds me a little bit, I, I think you said it, the importance of like constant reflection, what projects, clients to work with, public statements, work practices, like it's probably the way to get architecture and design organisations from just empty sort of gestures to something that resembles progress, I guess, towards the kind of future we want. I guess all I'll say is I think that I want to go back to what you said before, Charlie, about how if one thing out of the pandemic that is coming with us might be disorganizing. Again, the architecture lobby began to do some of these things even before we would have national calls. We would use all the tools already available. It's probably gotten better. With DMU, it even worked faster, to be honest, because it was just kind of immediate and constant conversation. But that, that I find this moment interesting and, and that I, I would urge more uh, people, more architects to join organizing efforts, uh, to not see them as something that other people do it. That I think having robust uh, pluralistic democratic processes with big tents is the only way we can move forward to reimagine how we produce space, the kind of space we produce and who we produce that space for. 